Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. On today's Currents episode, our guest is Steve Levine. Steve is editor-at-large at Medium, writing on the impact of technology, science, economics, and demography on jobs, society, politics, and geopolitics. Prior to Medium, he was editor for the future at Axios. Steve is also a senior fellow from the Atlantic Council's Foresight, Strategy, and Risks Initiative, and is an adjunct professor at Georgetown University, where he teaches energy security in the graduate level security studies program. Steve's also been on the show before where we did a really excellent uh, episode about battery technologies. If you're interested in uh, climate change and uh, renewable energy, check that episode out. Jim Rutt Show, Steve Levine, you'll find it. Uh, Anyway, uh, today's current episode is based on a Medium post, which I happened to catch, uh, titled Remote Working is Killing the Hidden Trillion Dollar Office Economy. Uh, Steve, welcome. Hey, Jim. Tell me what you're trying to get at with that essay. Um, So this is something that it's a big thing that's hiding in plain sight. And and that's that we know, of course, that very few of us are going to work. Um, uh, Office buildings, those uh, enormous uh, uh, dense areas of our big cities are ghost towns, but uh, uh, though, though a lot of those people, um, the white collar folks who are working in those big buildings have kept their jobs. They're, they're, they're just home working, but, but what they are, they're a, uh, the core of a much larger ecosystem of, of, uh, of suppliers for the buildings, uh, uh, mom and pop shops that surround uh, or 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 are built within uh, these uh, uh, concentrated areas, and when you add all those businesses up, you come to about uh, a hundred million workers. And so that uh, and so that when when we're talking about remote, uh, you know, perhaps the permanence of remote work or the semi permanence or only half of us going back, we're talking about a tremendous blow to a, uh, a very, very large part of, of the U.S. economy. Mm, yeah, indeed. And they are those who've listened to some of my earlier podcasts on uh, COVID-related topics know that we often frame the discussion uh, in uh, complex systems terms when we talk about hysteresis and homeostasis. Uh, which which are two terms we use, that when a system receives a shock, uh, homeostasis means the tendency for it to return to its previous state, to essentially buffer the shock and things get back to normal may take a while. Hysteresis, on the other hand, is a term originally from physics, physics that when a shock to a complex system is of sufficient magnitude, it never comes back. And uh, when I'm thinking about these kinds of uh, effects around uh, the pandemic, uh, you know, I like to uh, think about 
hysteresis, uh, what are or homeostasis, which things will come back, and hysteresis, which things will never come back, or at least will never come back totally. They'll go on a new trajectory. Uh, and, uh, you know, if I were to put down a bet, I'd put down at least a small one that with respect to, uh, you know, traditional high dollar big city office space, uh, we're talking hysteresis at least as much as homeostasis. Uh, I kind of doubt it's going to come back. What are your thoughts on that? You know, when you're in the, when you're in the middle of the shock, then, uh, I, I think that you're, you're not silly. And it's hard to, uh, to have a sensible, uh, uh, balanced appreciation of what, of what, of what the long-term impacts are going to be. Like, like in, in, in short, you can think, will this ever end? Is this ever going to end? And things, things seem like, and if, if, if history is an example, uh, prior pandemics, 1918, we did go straight into the roaring twenties. Um, and, and so, you know, uh, that's, that's, um, that's an antecedent we have to look at, but what we're seeing now is, is that time is not standing still. So companies are taking stock of how, um, how their businesses have gone during this period. They've made, uh, 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 adjustments using zoom and other, uh, video conferencing, um, uh, systems and, um, you know, so, so my own, my own company medium just announced last Friday, uh, we're not going back to the office, uh, at least until this time next year, one more year like this. And, uh, and, and so I have to wonder if the, uh, the, uh, hysteresis thesis, uh, uh, at least to some degree is appropriate here simply because companies see an upside in, uh, in, in embracing home from work. Indeed. And I think the other thing uh, that's really important to think about when we're considering these questions is compared to 1918, uh, the technical substrate really does make a big difference. You know, in 1918, there weren't really any choices other than uh, going back to the office uh, today uh, with, you know, things like the Internet and Zoom and lots of interesting and cool other technologies that are just about to emerge like VR conferencing, et cetera, uh, there's an alternative. And in fact, uh, I've been arguing for some time that uh, business travel was stuck in a uh, sticky uh, global suboptima. There was really no reason for as much business travel as we've had, at least since maybe 2010 or 11, when uh, inexpensive or nearly free uh, video conferencing came on and reliable video conferencing came on the scene. But, you know, there's habit and there's also uh, signaling, right? I'm, I'm not showing you the proper respect and deference if I don't travel out to California to sit down with you to sell you a $5 million software package. Uh, when uh, the shock to the system comes, it gave an excuse for people to get out of that suboptima or instead of spending, you know, three days and $2,000 to make uh, two sales calls, uh, one could make uh, 20 sales calls in the same amount of time. And so the 
being knocked out of that basin of attraction uh, essentially allowed us to escape the previous stickiness uh, that I believe a lot of it was around, uh, you know, signaling, social signaling of uh, people's relative importance and such. And uh, those may have the makings, uh, you know, of hysteresis because it's not really in anybody's interest. Uh, I'd much rather talk to some sales guy over Zoom than have his uh, sweaty and greasy self in my office, right? And as the sales guy himself, uh, he could be way more efficient uh, if he doesn't have to be uh, traveling around the country. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, uh, kind of cultural inertia kept us in some of these uh, basins and the shock allowed the marble to fly out of the bowl. Yeah, this is, Jim, such an interesting point, this use, your your use of this term, uh, social signaling, because th- this is absolutely a key, uh, a key factor in this, in terms of business travel. If you were in, in an important meeting, uh, sitting with, you know, the CEO and the, and the COO and, and, uh, uh, whomever else, and, uh, you had flown out to Phoenix. So you were sitting with them. Uh, but the other guy is on the, is on the video, right? He's on the video call. He's up there on the, on the screen. That guy on the screen, he's got a delay, right? He, uh, uh, you know, it's very awkward to butt in. And you were a second-class citizen. You, you were not, if you wanted to be in, uh, to be really in on decision-making, you uh, more or less had to be there. Uh, but uh, uh, COVID has turned everyone, no matter where they are, into equal uh, equal citizens in that in that meeting, and uh, that that's likely to uh, y- you know to to linger when this is all over. Indeed, and the other thing that's interesting, and it's become very clear because I do probably uh, ten to fifteen zooms a week, in addition to two or three podcasts a week, or usually two, but sometimes more. Uh, I've noticed people are getting better at it. Right. And so there's uh, adaptation and social learning around how to use these tools. Uh, and again, that's, uh, you know, kind of trajectory dependent, uh, evolution. You know, if we hadn't had COVID, uh, the thing you described, in fact, I can still recall, uh, really hating to be on board meetings remotely, right? Cause you were so ineffective compared to being there, uh, in person. Right. Uh, and I would just frankly just, uh, say, no, I'm not going to come on the Zoom. I'll come in on the audio and just listen and, uh, you know, play Othello or something while the meeting was going on. Right. Uh, but now we've all gotten way better at it. So, again, that uh, reinforces the, the trajectory. It's cheaper and we've gotten good enough uh, in general. Uh, and cheaper is important. Uh, you know, uh, one area that I'm quite involved in is science governance and facilitation of science. And of course, I still do some scientific research myself from time to time. And uh, scientific meetings uh, virtually are amazingly uh, less expensive than uh, uh, face-to-face. In fact, I just uh, agreed to fund three scientific meetings. And the costs are literally a tenth of what they would be if this if these had been uh, face-to-face meetings. So that uh, you know the ability to have more uh, scientific meetings is is actually uh, very substantially upregulated by this uh, systems dynamics uh, change of going to virtual. On the other hand, there is some downsides, and you know I uh, talked to people, especially younger people, who. 
really missed the opportunity for doing the networking and the you know the the you know, the famous statement that ah the sessions aren't that important it's the conversations at coffee that really matter so at least so far uh, we haven't evolved the virtual to be to ha- capture all the value of face to face but we're doing it at a, at a tenth the cost let's say and I suspect because we are adaptive and learning animals. Uh, our tools in the, say in the next year, you know, if medium is a good uh, benchmark of how long uh, there'll be a strong commitment to this work at home, and I suspect it's not far off, uh, we'll get these tools and we'll have the equivalent of the uh, coffee conversations at scientific meetings and, uh, and other kinds of conferences. Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's, uh, that's the serendipity factor. You, so so a, uh, a counterfactual on this would be uh, Facebook is snapping up real estate, uh, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, but ar- around the country, it's cheap now, you know, p- play, uh, with, uh, folks going out of business and so on. Why are they doing that? Why Facebook has announced that, that by 2030, uh, it expects half, uh, only half of its workforce to have returned to the office. If that's the case, why are they snapping up this real estate? And and that 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 factor that that serendipity factor that the young uh, scientists are are describing to you, I think this technology is not is not there yet. Um, it's it's I, I get um, emails and and uh, you know pings from um, technologists with some frequency claiming. That they've solved for serendipity, you know. Take a look at my technology, um, but no one thinks so. I mean, the the folks who are af- actually using it don't think that it's the same thing as bumping it. You know, creating a a virtual room at a conference where you know you can enter it and everyone else is in there. It, I mean, it it seems like it should be um, serendipitous. But somehow, when you're in there, it doesn't meet it doesn't meet the same uh, uh, the same bar, and maybe because you don't have a beer in your hand while you're there, I, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, that's, I think you're right. I mean, I've looked at some of these too. People are always pitching me on these things, and I've yet to see one that actually does it for me. However, I am seeing improvement. Uh, some of the stuff originally was just laughable, but I'd say it's now. Uh, within striking distance, uh, and the one I'm, the area I'm most interested in uh, is VR conferencing. Uh, that could do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've heard, for instance, that the VR version of uh, what's that damn thing they do out in the desert, Burning Man, uh, is oh, right. apparently quite impressive. Uh, I've heard this from uh, multiple people. I haven't had the uh, chance to, or didn't get the chance to uh, engage with it. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's just the kind of cutting edge thing where there'll be some cultural learning and, uh, we might get, we might get some serendipity out the other side. That will be, uh, be something very interesting to watch over the next year. Let's pivot now to the real estate market. I had not heard that Facebook was buying up real estate. That seems to me, a uh, I wouldn't be doing it unless the prices were really cheap, but which they might be. You know, buying assets at distress is seldom a bad idea. But before our call, I did a little research and, uh, the number that I found is that the uh, value last year, i.e. before the pandemic, of our all the office space in the United States was $2.5 trillion. That's a damn big part of the economy, right? Right. Uh, 
And if you assumed a possible contraction of maybe 50% in the value, uh, which doesn't strike me as crazy, because remember, uh, in uh, market capitalism, everything happens at the margin, right? And uh, marginal changes way less than 50% can produce a 50% decline in value. Yes. Just th- you know, think of the fact that the stock market goes down 50% from time to time. Uh, and that's probably only a 10% change in aggregate demand for stocks. Anyway, a 50% contraction in the office market asset value would be a bigger shock to the financial system uh, than the uh, mortgage crisis of 2007-2008, and so and which triggered the Great Recession. So uh, it's, it's worth cons- thinking about the fact that uh, there's going to be some potential financial follow-on if indeed there is uh, a long-term or even a short-term diminution in the value of uh, uh, office space as an asset class. Yeah, I I, I totally agree that um, so you're in a situation where um, uh, already if um, companies are in distress um, and uh, and not just companies, because when we're talking about the office economy, we're also talking about retail, restaurants, uh, um, shop, shops like shoe shine, uh, dry cleaners, you know, the the uh, cleaners, the 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 uh, you know the the list of occupations that are reliant uh, on that office economy it, it is very very long. And, and, and the part of it that's just the white collar workers is not the majority. And, uh, and, and so uh, it's, uh, it's um, uh, you know, when you talk about the office, if, if they're in distress and they can't pay their mortgage, then, then, the, then the guy who owns that office building, he's got to pay off the bank uh, too. And, and so, yes, you, you have a potential uh, gut punch to commercial real estate and to banking, yep. this is a uh, is a is a a, a very uh, worrying situation economically and un- un- underappreciated the scale of it. Exactly. And in fact, the trend over the last 10 years, 20 years, uh, has been for most companies to sell their office buildings and then lease them back. Right. And so the purchasers have been financial purchasers, typically pretty highly leveraged, you know, 80, 90 percent debt uh, finance. And so if you see a you know, 40, 50 percent decline in asset value, the banks are going to have to call the loans. Uh, the asset holders are going to have no way to repay the loans. And it will be a, a cascading domino. And it, you know, the bank will then seize the buildings, put them back on the market at low prices, trying to get what they can get. And that will accelerate the downward trend in value, which will cause more, uh, uh, you know, office building mortgage holders to fail. So one could see a a quite explosive exponential uh, financial crisis evolving from this uh, if it becomes clear that uh, the demand for office space is on a long-term decline. Right. And and, and then, uh, Jim, I, I'm wondering, I haven't looked into this. Maybe you have, but if, if not, we could talk about it. I, I'm certain that uh, office loans too have, have been, uh, have, have been uh, turned into um, uh, bonds, right? That, that have been sold. And, and, you know, the same, you know, that uh, amplifying impact of, 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 you know, of, uh, uh, you know, cutting those into pieces, 
re reconstructing them into a an allegedly triple A loan and they spread around the world. Yeah, I would assume so. I don't actually know. It's a good question. I may do a little bit of research on that. Uh, let's move on to a, another related topic. Uh, I was talking to a economics professor out at Stanford uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, and he was confirming what I'd heard anecdotally, that there is a, a very sudden, uh, very substantial exodus of people from the big cities. Uh, you know, San Francisco, New York, uh, L.A. for sure, and probably a bunch of others. Uh, and this could be an even greater uh, phase transition than the, uh, you know, retreat from, uh, you know, A-class downtown office buildings and uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, if people just move out of the cities entirely and move back to where maybe life is better and a hell of a lot cheaper. Yeah. This is now, Jim, this can go both ways, right? So, so yes, you do end up, and we are seeing that, um, that folks who, who, who could barely afford to live in San Francisco, in New York, um, are finding because of COVID that they can leave or they have to leave. You know, they just, they, they aren't em employed anymore and that's caused rents to drop. The last time I looked, which was a month ago, New York rents had dropped by 6%. That's right. It doesn't sound like much, but it's a lot, right? For a place like New York. Um, and, 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 and so, yes, you do get this exodus. The, but the other side of, of that is, is and I, I, I hope that I'm not upstaging a, um, a section you wanted to lead to. And if so, just tell me and we can pause and then talk about it later. But you, uh, you can end up, you know, you, uh, the, the, uh, the cost structure drops one or two levels and then suddenly it's affordable for a new class of people, and you rejuvenate these cities at a at a at a uh, at a stepped lower lower cost of living. Yep, and that certainly will happen. That, I mean, that you know, nothing is uh, linear. Everything is uh, you know nonlinear systems with feedback loops. So certainly, uh, let's say, because rents have been going down in New York for several years, which is interesting. They've been going down, oh, you know, five know or six percent for several at the high end, especially the you know three thousand dollar one bedrooms and what have you. They've been uh, coming down for a while, interestingly, uh, and six percent is probably only a little faster than they were coming down. But you're right, yeah, certainly there's going to be a, you know then an opening up of opportunity and. And, uh, you know, one of the things that's uh, New York in particular is horrendous for restaurant tours because the rents are so damn high. Uh, you know, if uh, commercial real estate rents fall on their ass, it'll actually open up a lot of opportunity for restaurants that couldn't have existed. So it's never uh, just one part of the effect. There's always a feedback loop. Uh, on the other hand, if we talk about hysteresis and homeostasis, uh, you know, people again, uh, lived in New York, lived in San Francisco or Silicon Valley, L.A., uh, because they felt they had to, I suspect, uh, an awful lot of them to pursue their careers. Uh, and, uh, and again, as uh, just like business travel, it's actually been technically feasible to do a lot of work uh, living in uh, a much lower cost and probably better quality of life place. Uh, for quite a while, at least 10 years. Uh, but the pandemic actually gave people the opportunity to do it, to try it, uh, and the bosses wouldn't hold it against them. And I think it's at least arguable that people will find that 
that, you know, living in a rural area or a small city um, or even a medium-sized city, uh, you know, like Pittsburgh, it's a very livable place, very high quality of life, but the, you know, cost of real estate's about, shit, what is it, maybe a fifth of what it is in uh, New York or uh, San Francisco. Uh, this might be a permanent change. It may well be that people, that particularly young people, who are the ones most beaten to shit in the big cities because uh, they don't have the economic means, you know, four of them living in a one-bedroom uh, apartment. Uh, they may no longer do that anymore. It may well make more sense to uh, live in uh, a medium-sized city or even a small city and uh, and make your living remotely. That'll be very interesting if that happened. Yeah. yeah. So you, you've gotten me thinking about um, what happened in in the Black Death. After the Black Death, the, the, the other big um, pandemic, and uh, and it it uh, in the 14th and the 15th century, one of the things it did was was lead to the um, to the uh, uh, disappearance of the surf system, and and uh, and that 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 whole class divide uh, that 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 kept so much of the European population, in, uh, you know, down. And uh, you know, with uh, and all, all the things we know about that, be- because uh, you know, tragically, uh, a third or a half of Europe's population died. Then suddenly, labor was at a premium, and so the uh, the the survivors could uh, demand and did demand much higher wages o- over uh, decades and decades. Of course, the folks, the immediate survivors. Didn't you know they they didn't achieve any any upside and that you know that's what happens this time is that the folks who lose their their jobs the folks who lose their businesses they're not the ones who are going to uh, who are going to benefit from a, a, you know a next uh, positive stage uh, it'll be a, the next generation that 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 uh, achieves that but nevertheless uh if if you uh just uh as a, as a thought experiment thought of an analogy to that of of uh of the creation the elevation of a new middle class and that you know it's thought that that's what led to the that that, that helped le- lead to the reformation and then the enlightenment and 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 all that was set up for for the uh for the industrial revolution uh you know uh, you could think here so many people's uh living standards have dropped people have uh, a lot of people have fallen out of the middle class over the last three decades for you know for, for you know uh uh all of the reasons that I'm, I'm sure you've discussed on the on the show and uh and cities you're ending up with you know superstar cities superstar uh professions if you're not in these superstar professions living in these superstar cities then you're stuck at these lower living standards living in uh, in 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 uh, lesser communities does this does the does the step change of covid 19 create a new set of of uh, of costs uh, and places to live that that sort of open up the gates for for uh, uh, for these folks to to achieve the middle class status that they no longer ha- uh, that, that they no longer had. 
I think the answer to that is uh, probably yes. In fact, uh, in our Game B movement, uh, which is a political social change, uh, not really political, but uh, social change movement that I've been involved with since the beginning, uh, that's one of our uh, visions is that, uh, you know, we were actually working on it long before COVID, but that uh, a better way to live for a lot of people, particularly those not in the star occupations, it's a good uh, way to describe them, uh, would be to live in rural areas or outside small cities uh, where uh, land is inexpensive, but quality of life is good. Uh, you know, kind of on the model of the Israeli kibbutz. Uh, I've done a fair amount of research on uh, the kibbutz. In fact, had uh, a scholar of the kibbutz on the podcast recently. And uh, uh, we're actually starting to sketch out some of these uh, settlements, which we call proto-bees. There's another version called civium, uh, also part of the game bee movement. Uh, and the idea is they would be uh, designed to provide a really good uh, quality of living for uh, uh, young couples with children making maybe seventy thousand a year uh, between them. So you know uh, that seventy thousand dollars a year, uh, say where I live in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, uh, you're basically talking about an assistant manager at Wendy's and a guy that works in a warehouse uh, for. Uh, Walmart. Uh, that would bring you up to about $70,000 a year. Uh, you tried to live in New York City on that kind of a income and you'd be living in a, you know, rat infested, cockroach infested place way out in one of the outer boroughs if you were lucky. Uh, under our plan, uh, you could have your own house with a lot of shared infrastructure, uh, extremely good quality of life, uh, an excellent charter school system associated with the community, built-in daycare, etc., which you could never possibly afford in the uh, in anywhere near any of the big cities. Yeah, so we're so we're painting a a future that looks in the in the short and medium term. Um, not so great, especially for the folks who who have lost their businesses, part of this office ecosystem, uh, who won't, they won't come back. They're not, you know, the, the guy who owned his own dry cleaners, mom and pop dry cleaners, or their, their restaurant, you know, where do they, we don't know where they go to, but, uh, but the next, the next generation, the, the folks who are coming into who are just graduating college, let's say, or just entering college, those those folks could uh, could end up uh, benefiting from from the uh, from the the upheaval caused by COVID. Yep, and it's, you know, kind of like slash and burn agriculture, right? You <laughs> burn out the old, and then something new grows up. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and 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 the other thing that we're, I mean, it's a it's a it's a um, it's an element that's just sitting there, and we've we've kind of mentioned it. I mean, but but ju just to bring it back in, the the cities them the cities themselves can be can uh, can become much more affordable. Maybe not. I I, I don't know. Uh, maybe not affordable for those folks with a combined seventy thousand dollar income, but maybe a little bit more than that. They can, uh, if, if they're young, they, uh, they can move back. They can move back to the city. Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. I mean, I'm not 100% sure the big city is a humane place to live. I know a lot of people like it, uh, but 
uh, strikes me as it's quite alien from, uh, you know, those things which we actually resonate with as human beings. Uh, you know, uh, beautiful nature, uh, you know, the ability to have, uh, calm and quiet in one's life, you know, safety for one's children, uh, you know, sense of knowing your neighbors, uh, real conviviality. Uh, you know, this, this may be an opportunity to escape that whole urbanization thing that's going on worldwide. And that might, if that were to be the case, uh, that would be the biggest outcome uh, from this shock. Yeah. Well, okay. So you, so you, ra- uh, so you raise um, two things. One is the, uh, the consensus forecast of, uh, of, of, of the big uh, high, uh, white shoe think tanks like uh, like the Boston Consulting Group and McKinsey and all you know uh, uh, Bain that were inexorably urbanizing. Um, this 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 could reverse that, right? Yep, that's a hypothesis, uh, and it uh, probably doesn't do it dramatically right away, but it may produce enough of the you know the two percent innovators to show the way. Uh, you know, people are rightfully. Uh, skeptical about new ideas, uh, particularly about how how and where to live. But you know, let's say two percent of people actually do make the move over the next ten years. Two uh, percent, six million people—that's a lot, right? And if we uh, have you know thousands of small communities of, on the order of a few hundred people who are actually showing how a really ultra wonderful way of life can be had at a quite reasonable uh, level of income uh, that could then attract the next part, the so-called early adopters. And, you know, the next, you know, when Gen Z comes up and becomes ready to go out into the workforce, uh, maybe 15% of them uh, move to these uh, uh, non-urban high quality of life communities. Uh, And then over another couple generations, it becomes the norm and the cities become depopulated. Of course, this has happened before. I like to point out that Rome at its peak had a population of, I don't know, a million and a half, something like that. Uh, By 800 AD, the population of Rome, what was it? 15,000. Oh, my God. 15,000. So we have seen the decline of cities in the past. And uh, uh, who knows? Maybe this is the beginning of it. You know, it won't happen overnight. It's going to be the work of generations. But truthfully, my view is that we'd be happier uh, not living in these giant urban uh, monsters uh, that kind of squeeze the humanity out of When I think of New York, and I go to New York, used to go to New York fairly regularly. Uh, the thing that always strikes me in my mind as sort of unhuman is when you're riding the subway, everyone's looking down at their shoes and not interacting with each other and intentionally shutting each other off. It's just like a weird, weird, weird way to live. Yeah, but, but uh, the, uh, yes, this so, and, the, and, and that Rome example is so dramatic. Um, urbanists, uh, argue for your homeostasis thesis on cities though they say cities uh have forever been forecast for death uh but they bounce back and and uh and and rome did eventually bounce back i don't know what 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 year did it come back to um to its prior uh level i guess it must have taken hundreds of years yeah, I got a graph somewhere with that on it. One of the presentations that I do, I don't have it accessible at my fingertips. And you're right. You know, the two of the scholars associated with our Santa Fe Institute, uh, Jeffrey West and Luis Betancourt have done a lot of work on cities. And they point out that cities last way longer than 
companies or even countries, right? Uh, you know, Damascus, Syria has been around for something like 7,000 years through, uh, you know, one empire after the other, one conqueror after the other, and Damascus is still there. Uh, so there's something about the form of cities uh, which are very good for longevity, but from time to time they do disappear. And, uh, you know, again, uh, the other thing to keep in mind is, uh, is that, that we talked about at the very beginning is that the network substrate may change everything. Uh, prior to inexpensive, high quality uh, ability to interact uh, via the network, there really wasn't a reasonable alternative to the cities for uh, certain kinds of human collaboration. Uh, that may no longer be true. Yeah, that is right. So uh, in, 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 uh, in 1347, there was no Zoom. Um, as far as we know, <laughs> as far as we know, um, but it's interesting. It's it's interesting. Uh, it's an interesting point. But but, but uh, uh, just from a policy perspective, um, it's it's uh, we're going to have if uh, the, uh, policymakers need to think about the the potential impact to the cities. I mean to. to to, to, to smaller places, that's a positive impact. You don't have to do anything except perhaps, you know, pave the roads and, uh, you know, and, and bring in more internet. But, but, uh, but for the cities, uh, the, uh, the impact, not just, it doesn't matter if, if you're, uh, uh, you know, a red state guy and why should we do anything for the blue state guys or the blue city guys? Uh, this is the, it's at a scale that's the economy. It's the U.S. economy. It's a hundred million people who are who, who are in that who are in that city e economy. Everyone is going to be hurt. Yeah, and this transition is going to be painful for an awful lot of human beings. And, and we also need to you know consider the fact there could be some very adverse uh, political social uh, impacts from the short term negative shock. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I look back ominously at, you know, 1922 to 1933 in Germany, right, where the uh, middle class was first decimated by hyperinflation, which wiped out most of their savings. And then the Great Depression, a lot of people lost their jobs. And as you said, they just knocked out of the middle class or even out of the upper working class. And when such things occur, people are willing to try what in retrospect uh, we can see is just crazy ass shit. And, you know, we're starting to see it, you know, both the left and the right uh, in the United States are, you know, out in the streets killing each other at low numbers so far, uh, but that could accelerate at any time. So uh, I suspect that, uh, you know, this more extreme uh, absolutist politics that we're seeing on both flanks uh, may actually be accelerated by, uh, you know, the people who are being knocked out of the, uh, the middle class or even the upper working class. Yeah, I love this uh, this formulation, the uh, the sort of standard that you've established for uh, for the uh, the possibility of where where, where we could go um, on the extremes, and it would be called uh, the uh, crazy ass shit uh, uh, metric. Yes, exactly. And I think one uh, one to ten or one to hundred. Where are you on this scale? 
uh, it's one. It's a group of us that meet weekly to discuss this, and <laughs> uh, and some of the top. I won't name their names. Some names you would know. Uh, and our current thinking is that you know we're about a ten out of a hundred, but we're at could well be close to a cusp where it goes to eighty out of a hundred, which basically means uh, civil war or. Uh, or an authoritarian crackdown. And we're probably only a one wrong event away from a phase change from 10 out of 100 crazy shit to 70 or 80 out of 100 crazy shit. Uh, and the fact that uh, uh, people on both sides are so amped up, so living in bubble chambers where uh, they interpret the world through a lens of radical ideology uh, and where any you know, a random happenstance event uh, could be amplified uh, and produce this phase change is, I think, what, we, what, we're, what we're really concerned about. Uh, and, you know, the coming election could provide that opportunity. Uh, you know, uh, a single or very small group that creates some outrage. You know, imagine the uh, uh, the alt-right sets off a car bomb in the middle of a Black Lives Matter demonstration, you know, well, well within the uh, capability of you know, five guys who are, you know, former military people. Uh, what would that do in terms of a uh, inflection point? Or suppose the, uh, uh, you know, on the other side, the, you know, the demonstrators in Portland actually burned down the house of the chief of police and the police respond with a police riot. What would that do to inflate the situation? So there's an awful lot of close at hand nodes that could take our current uh, 10 out of 100 situation and move it to a into a much bigger situation. Yes. Uh, Jim, I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you. You get uh, Charlottesville was, right, was just a little thing it, 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 in a, you know, a relatively small group, but, but the, the, uh, you know, the uh, butterfly effect, the impact of this, it's, it, it's remained with us. And then uh, I'm thinking about the other day, there was a report, it, it, was, it was just in the last two or three days, there was a report in the New York Times in Portland of, uh, of protesters going into, uh, BLM post protesters going into white neighborhoods and demanding that, uh, that, that uh, people make a show of support for, uh, for, their, for, uh, for that cause. And then running across, encountering a house where there was an American flag and uh, and making you know a big noise in front of this person's house, and uh, and then quoted again. This is the Times. It's not a crazy. This is not crazy media. Uh, uh, saying you know if if we come back tomorrow and that flag is still there, we're going to burn down your house. Um, that you know uh, that sort of thing uh, could turn into what you're describing. Right? It's it's a uh, it. it it's a it's, it's such a volatile uh, time, and uh, I mean we I, I guess we've kind of gone off the we've 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 kind of diverged. But it but if if people were employed, I mean maybe it's not disconnected. If people were employed, um, and there weren't COVID, uh, you know, maybe we wouldn't you know we wouldn't have a lot of this stuff in the in the streets right now. Yeah, and that was exactly my point, which is that as people start having reason to have alliance with the status quo, i.e. they have a, a decent job, uh, they can pay their rent, etc., uh, then this kind of stuff uh, gets 
you know, it, it, it's happened before and it peters out over time. But to the degree people are kicked out of the middle class and, and don't really see an alternative, then the extremes of the right and the left uh, start to make sense. Right. Yes. And that, I think that was really my point. Yes. Uh, so so I think that, you know, hopefully, hopefully we can de-escalate from this craziness, uh, but we may not be able to. Uh, and you probably all of us individually should try to uh, not get sucked into the vortex of the left or, or the extreme. Or I now I call them, by the way, I have a new name for them, the infrareds and the ultraviolets. Right? <laughs> you know, we have the red and the blue. And if you go on the spectrum beyond red and blue, you get infrared on the red side and ultraviolet on the on the blue side. So, uh, you know, try not to get sucked into the vortex of the infrareds or the ultraviolets. Yeah, I, just just but but just to. Uh, uh, to throw another an, another wild card in there, a a poll yesterday or the day before, how many Americans, regardless of uh, of uh, ideology, are prepared to take the first generation of vaccine that comes out? Less than fifty percent, whether you're Democrat or Republican. Yeah, this is the erosion of our sense-making capability due to uh, social media and its unintended consequences. You know, you know how many Americans have died from the side effects of vaccines since 1950? I do not. A hundred. Oh, my God. It's a hundred. And uh, most of those were one bad case of the swine flu vaccine. Vaccines are remarkably safe. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is uh, insanity, essentially, this uh, anti-vaxxer thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that we were, uh, you know, connected by a network of contagion, I'd say, you know, hail Mary, fellows, let Darwinism work its magic, right? <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, when people don't take vaccines, it puts us all at risk. So uh, right, people don't be idiots when the vaccines are out. Uh, you know, make sure you do your due diligence. You know, I'm not sure I'd use these Russian and Chinese vaccines, which are already out uh, without adequate testing. But if they've gone through the, you know, full three stages, no shortcuts of the FDA vaccine process, it would seem to me uh, nutso, uh, you know, not to take the vaccine. Yes, I agree. I agree. And 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 just to just to close the loop on that, all the things we're we're describing uh, are, uh, are are uh, you know the outcome, the outflow of um, of COVID, right? If, if we can get get this under under control, even short of a vaccine, right? Just get get control of our health system. Um, that would resolve a lot of this. It would certainly help. It would it would not be gasoline on the fire. I do believe we had, I mean, the country was going nuts before COVID, uh, but COVID has been gasoline poured on the fire. Yeah. I, th I think with that uh, with that note, I think we're going to wrap it up. We've kind of reached our 45-minute uh, time window for a uh, current uh, episode. I really want to thank you, Steve, for an extraordinarily interesting conversation. Jim, it was so great. And uh, we uh, let's do it again. And um, uh, I mean, we covered so, uh, so many topics, but uh, last time we talked about batteries, batteries are, you know, back on the, back on the uh, radar screen with Elon Musk. We should re uh, return to that sometime. Sounds good.
Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.